Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have a gentleman that is doing something different than any other guest that I've spoken to in terms of his relationship to commercial real estate. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation. What this gentleman does is he helps multifamily operators basically make more money, increase their net operating income on a consultative basis. He is the managing principal of the ARM companies. He is... Andy McQuaid. Andy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Yep. Uh, and I appreciate it too. Andy, do you're there in the iconic Rochester, uh, New York, home to, you know, RIT, home to the, I always, because I'm old, associated with Kodak, not necessarily a great association, but, you know, Rochester's a iconic town. So my my question is, is that where you hail from? What what is the Andy story pre uh doing what you're doing now? Uh, I actually grew up not far from here. I grew up in Syracuse, um or just outside of Syracuse. Never lived in the city proper, but the my entire life born grew up in Fayetteville for a bit, a little bit in Manlius, a little bit in Chittenango, went to Lemoyne. Uh, my wife went to SU. Syracuse University. Uh, we bounced out of Syracuse. Uh, I left for work in 03. My company moved me out here to Rochester. And uh, I was with them till 07. And then took another job with another company in uh, the, the fall of 07. And worked for them for 11 years. And went to do some other stuff and started this in 2019. So I've been doing... Uh, I guess solopreneur consulting services since uh, since around May of 2019. So we're getting up to five years almost, uh, and it's been a, it's been a, a little bit of a whirlwind. I think I've learned more in the last five years about business than I learned being in senior leadership for massive corporations over my career. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm going to tell a story about Syracuse. I try not to tell stories about me because generally. Nobody has any interest at all, nor do I blame them. But the idea is to be this podcast to be about you. But the Syracuse thing, I have two brothers that went there. My younger brother like came within one class of graduating and it pissed my mother off to the day, God rest her soul, died. She paid for his education. And uh, my brother had the rare qualification that he partied Almost as much as I did, um, but I, by hook or crook, I, I got my degree not from Syracuse. Anyway, I digress. You know, I, I obviously, uh, you know, looked a, poked around a little bit at your profile to prepare for this conversation with you. I, I think you worked at Home Depot. It looks like you were a, you know, a uh, home improvement. Very extensive background in that. So I can make a leap as to what qualified you from that experience to do the consulting. You're doing now, but instead of doing that, I'm just going to point blank ask you the question: What is it about your background that kind of puts you in a position to be able to add value to multifamily operators? Uh, absolutely. So, I uh, my background's a little odd 
for consulting, as you mentioned, it's it's a little bit varied. So I spent uh, about eleven years at a lumber yard. I started my career part time doing that for eighty four lumber. Uh, I worked nights and weekends. They gave me keys. I was getting paid more than the hourly guys to close the stores at night and run the store on weekends. They offered me a assistant manager position before I finished college. Uh, when I was about nineteen years old, I withdrew, went full time, took that job. I was a store manager two years later, um, eh, two and a half years later, I guess. So by twenty-two years old, I had my own box as a general manager. Uh, I did that for a year. I bounced out of there. My store that I left was doing about three million dollars a year. I turned it around. It was about a, a two million dollar box, losing a hundred thousand dollars a year, and I I was able to put put it back in the black in one year. Um, they moved me to an $8 million sales team to run that. I did that for a year. And then one of my sales guys quit. Wanted to go down to the corporate office to be a window buyer. I don't know. I don't understand it. Didn't like dealing with people. He wasn't a great sales guy anyway. So I took all his accounts. Started working with some really huge local uh, high-end uh, residential builders and developers here in Rochester. That was really my first taste of both commercial construction uh, on the multifamily side, as well as uh, big custom single-family McMansions, right, four to six thousand square feet, all kinds of detail. I was doing, you know, blueprint takeoffs, the whole nine yards. What a lumberyard outside sales guy does, right? Um, I did that for a few years, and then I had a call come in from Home Depot. They were headhunting people to come in during Frank Blake's turnaround of the company in '07. And uh, they wanted me to come in and be a district manager over pro. So at 28 years old, I took that job, uh, came in as a district manager with seven stores. As that role progressed, they dissolved some districts at one point to, to make the company more profitable. So we picked up a couple more stores. I was at nine. And then around 2015, I ended up with a second district. <laughs> Lucky me, more work, same pay. Um, and that was uh, over 18 stores. So my, my territory actually went from uh, Messina, New York, which is up on the Canadian border in the Adirondacks, all the way down to uh, Olean, New York, which is on the border of Pennsylvania. So it was about a five and a half hour tip to tip drive. If I was to do that, I only had to do that once in the three years that I, that I did that job, thank God. And uh, it was uh, a learning experience, let's say that. So part of my job overseeing the pro desks and supporting them was to deal with large accounts spending over however many hundreds of thousands of dollars per year and to help them spend more and kind of like concierge their relationships with the, with the, the Home Depot as an organization. During that time, starting around like 2012, 2013, I got really involved with multifamily. In Rochester here, we're very lucky to have some very large operators that either started here or had um, a significant presence here. And I really kind of cut my teeth on that. So in Little Rochester, New York, tertiary MSA, nothing special. I built the largest multifamily commercial property management portfolio in the United States at the Home Depot, um, which basically was about 30 to 40 accounts, spending somewhere anywhere between 500,000. And uh, my largest account was tracking at 7 million when I left the company. So doing $7 million a year with Home Depot is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> As a uh, as a multifamily operator, there was a lot of rehabs and turns, and we we I was uh, lucky enough to have the support to build a bunch of custom programs to kind of interface Home Depot better with that type of operation. So uh, it was a you know family offices, 
some REITs, some privately held stuff, smaller guys, but I had C-level access. I was essentially, by the time I left, I was acting as a national account manager. I was on a plane every three weeks, going to Michigan, going to Texas, going to the Carolinas, walking their properties, doing due diligence with them, helping them onboard local stores to how we ran the programs. Um, by the time I left, I had a dedicated team of three people in Atlanta that were supporting my clients that were outside the Rochester area. And uh, I had an assistant locally that was basically doing what I couldn't do <laughs> and calling on smaller local accounts right here. So I, I, I was very lucky. I had great support. They gave me a lot of leeway and gave me the, the, the team I needed to really kind of focus on the important stuff, which was learning the multifamily side of the business, how the operations worked, what their priorities were, and then just cut out all the Home Depot crap because Home Depot is not set up to do a lot of things well. So it was really just focusing on, well, what can we do that doesn't bring you pain, that can save you money and add value to your operations? So one client in particular, the one who was spending $7 million, about $3 million of that was appliances. And Home Depot never touched them. It left directly from the factory and went right to their apartment complexes. And nobody in the stores had to touch them. <laughs> it was a great program. We didn't make a lot of margin on it, but we did a lot of volume. So... Let me get my head around uh, something. So let me ask a couple clarifying questions because I just may, want to make sure I understand. So you're like calling on REITs, you're calling on family offices, like really big operators uh, in Rochester. And you were growing the size of those relationships and, and you kind of had a window into operations through that, you know, through, through that connection. I totally get it. But then you were saying you were in other places like Michigan and in other places, walking properties. And that's where I lost, that's where I kind of lost track of what you were doing at that point. Yeah. So it, it explain that to me, that part of it. So in the process of building these, um, these accounts up, th th some that were based in Rochester or were just doing business in Rochester, I built relationships with their C-level offices and their like VPs of construction and you know VPs of, of shared services or special services, whatever. They happen to bucket their construction, reno, rehab, maintenance operations, oversight into. Those were the relationships I really focused on building so I could continue scaling the business. So part of that relationship building was, okay, well, we have an, uh, you know, a couple of large family offices that were here in Rochester that had one had 34,000 doors in 17 different states and they were based here. So their office was in Victor, New York. It was an easy easy reach and not un unusual for me to get business out of Chicago, out of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, out of New Jersey, Rhode Island, wherever they happened to be. Uh, and they were all the way down to Texas. Another one was actually a family office that was based out of Jersey that had a bunch of properties here they were rehabbing. They had a great relationship with me, brought me in to do a 2,400-door apartment complex with over 300 buildings in Troy, Michigan. So they picked that property up around 20, late 2015, early 2016. And we did everything for all the rehabs and turns for all their interiors with the exception of like cabinetry and a couple of other miscellaneous SKUs. And that was just built off of me basically asking for the business and them needing the support. So I would, on their behalf, go to Michigan with their VP of construction, walk the units, create the lists, 
onboard the local store, work with the local store staff to make sure that they were stocking all the extra product they would need up in the overheads to make sure that the pricing was set, to make sure the service level expectations were set, to make sure that delivery timing was good. Because with 2,400 doors, we were literally making 15 to 30 deliveries a week, roughly. And a lot of it was whole unit turns, just on pallets dropped in front of the doors. So about five to eight a week, we would be dropping in front of these vacant apartment units. And the guys would come out after the demo was complete, grab everything off the pallets, bring it into the building. And I had to manage that remotely. So we had a couple people dedicated at the store. Store manager was on board to put whatever he needed in the overheads because it was millions of dollars a year for him. So... Again, God. concierging and, and sort of massaging the relationship, but really building the programs and the systems to make sure that they had what they needed to keep doing business with Home Depot. So there was no iffy products, you know, oh, we want you to buy our paint. No, Home Depot, I'm never going to sell your paint. It's too much of a pain in my butt. It's just not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> so I used to make a few people pretty cranky mm-hmm. while I was there. But uh, that's the price of having an actual working relationship where you understand the other guy's business and aren't just trying to push things on them because you're told to. Yeah, okay. I I get that uh, crystal clear. Uh, so you're able to go to the other side and provide value and, and, and represent them and be a complete, no conflict of interest whatsoever and act on their behalf. Essentially uh, so, correct, yeah. 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 It helped yeah. not having commission sales as part of the of the job role. So right. I didn't really have a lot of pressure to like force people into doing things that would hurt me in the long run. So very selfish on my part. I wanted less headaches. I have enough he- I had enough headaches working at Home Depot to begin with. I didn't want to invite more into my life. So Okay. So do you in terms of your relationship then, how how much Andy of what you do is is Consulting people with around around procurement of supplies, materials, as opposed to just like day to day operations. Like, so in other words, what what are your what's the nature of your engagements? So it started actually. Um, it started as almost exclusively procurement based, um, and there's a story behind that. I left Home Depot in 2018 to um, be director of sales for a reclaimed wood manufacturer, right? They would take timbers and beams and turn them from old buildings and turn them into siding and paneling and flooring and all sorts of stuff. So I came in to run the sales team. We were in Japan, we were in Canada, we were across the United States, um, selling to Harvard and Facebook and Amazon and all these crazy places doing these huge projects, living building challenge stuff, uh, declare labels on everything. Really, I guess a different than what I was doing prior, uh, right? I hadn't worked for a manufacturer before, kind of wanted to expand my horizons. The money was good. Home Depot was making a bunch of changes internally that I didn't really like. So I gave them three weeks notice, left to go to this other place. And about... Uh, I, I kept in touch with all my customers. that We had relationships. And uh, one of the VPs from a local family office, which is no longer a family office, they actually sold all the operations and all the family members exited the company. But... Um, one of the VPs called me because he had just been uh, assigned. He left whatever role as a VP he had been doing for the last five years, took over a position that they created called procurement and risk management. So he called me to go to coffee. He's like, I just took this over. You know, you know everything that we do. You've been gone for, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it was at the time. He's like, You've been gone for a while, but you know everything we do, why we do it, how we do it. He's like, I need to come in and 
get my hands wrapped around this, where would you start? And then three and a half hours later, from what was supposed to be a half hour coffee, he's like, you should just do this full time. Like, okay, are you going to hire me? He's like, yeah. All right. <laughs> so um, I opened my LLC a couple weeks later, started getting all my stuff as far as my contracts and my insurance and all that stuff lined up. And then I was coming up on my one year anniversary. I had a choice to renew my contract or not renew my contract. Boss was in town on April 30th, gave him my two weeks. He told me I could leave. So I left my card and my credit card, and my keys on the desk and left and uh, started making phone calls to all my old clients from Home Depot, just saying, Hey, this is what I do now. Wanted you to know I'm back and however I can help you. And it's just kind of gone from there. Did, uh, do you in those situations, I would imagine, again, I've never spoken to somebody that does what you do, which is cool. I would imagine maybe some of the bigger, like for example, uh, an outfit that has 34,000 units, they, they must have in, you know, at that scale, obviously they have in, in-house buyers, right? People that are in charge of procurement. So do you can, you're laughing. So do, like, what do you, do you replace them? Like, did you get resistance from them or do you work with them? The boss is saying, Hey, work with this guy. He could do better. You know what I mean? Like, how does, how, well, how does that dynamic play out? It depends. Every, every single company, every single family office is different, right? Property management all has very similar challenges and very similar issues. And there's answers for them, but not every company has the parts in place to provide those answers. So some of them honestly didn't really have centralized purchasing and procurement. Some of them had extremely decentralized purchasing and procurement and they would create like a marketplace on Yardi or a purchasing portal through, you know, company X, Y, or Z and allow their properties to just order through that portal. That was part of what I did when I was at the Home Depot was to sort of interface when somebody had a system like that and get our company to provide product into that type of portal system. So I'm unfortunately more aware of how that those systems work than not, than I'd like to be. And they do issue some controls and a lot of transparency and a lot of other things, but they don't do a lot as far as increasing NOI or efficiency because of the additional cost of having that that portal there. Essentially, when a company signs on to do that, they lose a bunch of perks and benefits that they pass on to that middleman that's managing that process. So they lose a lot of their bulk discounts and special pricing. They lose a lot of their terms on their uh, uh, credit accounts. And it's complicated and probably too much detail to go into on this. But that's sort of where I bridge the gap. That was always my role was taking and explaining without getting into the super crazy technical stuff at the sea level okay this is how this is going to impact your NOI and so my my podcast that I have now and and what I do I still do procurement as a component of it but I started stealing ideas from companies that were struggling with different operational things and saying well why are you doing this company x y or z has done this successfully in these markets so what I have done and, and kind of what one of my other clients latched onto, I was actually doing a pitch. I had walked one of his properties that he had just picked up. He wanted to know, you know what was going on, what opportunities I saw. Just a real quick audit of the business model. It was like a 720-unit complex in Pennsylvania. He called me, wanted me to go out there and look at it, report out. And as I'm giving him the, the kind of the debrief, right, after I spent time there, because he's in Manhattan, the properties in Pennsylvania, he wasn't going to meet me there. I was there for two days, interviewed the guys, looked at the process. They were, you know, they had condemned buildings when they bought it. They were doing rehabs. They were doing turns. They had evictions going on. The place was a mess. It had been neglected for years. 
and that's his specialty is is value adds extremely depressed you know distressed properties that are coming off of a bad you know basically pre foreclosure um, on these big commercial properties. So uh, I went in there, gave him the presentation, and part of it was. You know, here's an opportunity that I see because you're spending three hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year in water. Like that's an amazingly high bill for seven hundred doors. You three hundred and thirty three thousand bucks is a, a ridiculous amount of water for that. Like, what's going on there? So I, I started talking about total cost of ownership. I'm like, you're going to spend money doing this. You're going to spend money putting all of these things in, right? <laughs> Aerators, shower heads, toilets, water saving fixtures. Pressure regulators, uh, check valves, all this stuff that wasn't there already. And it was an older apartment complex, right? Built in the 60s or 70s. So still had like water baseboard heat. There was, there was all sorts of places we could make improvements. And he, he latched on to the total cost of ownership thing. And he's like, yeah, if I'm going to hold this place, why, why wouldn't I want to minimize my costs over time? So yeah, I'll spend a little bit more now. So we started looking for grants to come in to figure out if we could get some help from the water authority, from the city, from the county, from the state to come in and help pay for some of the improvements because he's spending millions of dollars rehabbing this 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 700 unit apartment complex. Why wouldn't they want to, you know, do something? He's going to make the neighborhood safer, better better quality of life, higher quality products and finishes. That particular town and city and water authority charges a flat rate per door for water. What we could have saved him $89,000 a year just in his water bill, not including the maintenance that goes hand in hand with replacing fixtures and putting new toilets and all that in. And they were basically like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We don't care. You just use as much water as you want because we have no submeters on that property because we didn't, when it went up, we shortcutted and we connected it to the fire hydrant. So there's no water meters. We charge you 80, you know, $84 per unit. And um, sorry, you're stuck. Okay. <laughs> so he's basically spending an extra hundred grand plus a year by the time you factor in labor and maintenance on seven and eight gallon flush toilets from the 70s and 80s because the town didn't want to play ball. Which blew my mind. And, and, and there's a few others that I've run into since that point that was early in my career going out on my own. That was about six months after I, I left my other job. But it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience, <laughs> to, to say the least. So it sounds like in addition to being you know, a great sales guy, I don't really know any other way to put it. Um, and you're probably good at putting your, your client's interest in front of your own. You're probably a good listener and a good problem solver. I totally get that. But do you understand the construction element of all this? I do. Um, you do? Okay. I do. So my background at the lumberyard gave me a lot of insight into that. So Home Depot does not do new construction well. Reasonable job at remodeling, um, but not great as far as a supplier standpoint. I've been a National Association of Home Builders member since uh, probably 2008. I'm on the board of directors for the local home builders here in Rochester for the Upstate Building Industry Alliance side, which is um, set up for more local companies. And um, I've got a bunch of industry certifications through that. So I'm a, a, a 
certified aging in place specialist. I'm a certified green pro. I've got certifications in uh, zero waste through the U.S. Green Building Council. And the, I guess the long and short of it is I did a ton of new construction builds, everything from a, you know, an addition on the side of a house to a literally the largest single family residence I ever worked on was a 34,000 square foot mansion on the water in Webster, New York, right outside of Rochester. We started, the foundation went in and uh, I think it was, it started in like April of 04. And I was still selling product there at Home Depot in 2010. Because the house was not complete. Because it was so big and so detailed. Um, And I used to have to do all of the coordination of materials for whatever phase it was with whatever subcontractor was there. So it wouldn't really matter who the builder was. Part of the job as an outside sales guy doing doing lumber and building materials, because we used to do interior doors, trim, exterior doors, windows, all the lumber, roofing, sometimes siding. Like it was it wasn't a one-stop shop, but it was a significant number of things that we could do well again, right? Focus on what you can do and and let the other guys handle the other stuff. So we never got into mechanicals, we never got into electrical or any of that kind of stuff. It was always just the 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 shell, right? Dry that thing in. Make sure that all everything is ready to go. So when the, the guys get there, they can finish all of the electrical and heating and plumbing and whatever air conditioning units, ductwork and all that that we didn't want to touch. So I would have to coordinate with, you know, I'd ask the builder what his schedule looked like. Help them do the. I would do the blueprint takeoff, right? That was a free service. We used to just go through, and I would bang out the entire material list, top to bottom, of everything that they would need to do whatever phase I was bidding. So all the all the nails, fasteners, hangers, all the lumber. Same thing with roofing, all the H clips and plywood, like you name it. If it was a component that had to be used to complete that phase, I would do the takeoff and supply that stuff. So, and then different builders would buy different things, right? They were loyal to company XYZ for the roofing and siding. So I wouldn't go for that. I would go for the, the framing and the, and the windows and the exterior doors or whatever it may be. Same thing if they didn't want to use us for interior trim, they were loyal to somebody down the road. Fine. Get all your interior doors and trim and caulk and shims and glue and whatever from those guys. But it was about delivering the package. So I had to learn each one of these subs, whether it was a framer, whether it was a trim carpenter, whether it was a roofer, what they liked to use and who they were working for. So some guys have this type of roofing nail or some guys have that. Some guys like this type of, of glue, some guys like that. And part of that is just working with those subs and figuring all that stuff out and what their... Again, what's their priority? What do they care about? What's going to make their life easier? Because if their life is easy, my life is easy because then they don't complain to the owner, the builder, my customer about me. <laughs> so again, a little bit selfish, but helping them figure it out. So I had to understand the business, right? I had to understand how all this stuff goes together, not just to do the takeoffs, but so I could deliver the service correctly and get it there when it needs to be or ahead of time. So it's not in the way, but also so their guys aren't standing around and, and leaving to go do other jobs because the product's not there. So there was you know, managing, bringing all the stuff into the stores ahead of time because we didn't stock that stuff, most of it. Or if we did, we didn't have enough necessarily to complete every single job outside of the lumber. So I was just planning ahead, figuring out what that looked like on a project management standpoint, figuring out the timing, being out at the job site, talking to the subs a couple of times a week as part of just the job. That's just what it was. And so now, part of what I do and what I've done is if one of my clients, actually the same client with the 700 units in Pennsylvania, bought a local complex here, he hired me to come in 
and do all of the purchasing and do all of the specifications and materials for the entire 328 door turn. So I was there for about nine months, roughly, doing site inspections and timing, talking to all the subs. Of course, labor was a huge issue, right? He he bought this place in December of 21, a mortgage foreclosure note assumable from a green-up Fanny project, which was great. So he came in, picked it up for a song, 27.5, I think, or 27.8 for 328 doors in a really nice, could be a B-plus neighborhood in Ro- outside of Rochester in the suburbs. And um, I came in, walked it, picked the specs, negotiated the pricing, set up a national account with Sherwin-Williams for him, set up CODs so that all of his painters and stuff could go and buy at his pricing, get his colors and his level of service. But then he wasn't on the hook for stolen paint and missing materials. Negotiated all of his rebates and discounts, signed him up with Lowe's, signed him up with Home Depot, set him up with local you know, mom and pop distributors here because he'd been out of Rochester for probably four or five years at that point. And uh, just helped him get everything in, in a row to complete this project. So I was there for about nine months. When he was done, uh, we started construction in April of 22. We completed construction in April of 23. And the appraisal came back at $59.8 million. So about 12 months of actual work, about 18 months of planning and execution. And we doubled the value of the property, which was great. <laughs> But he only paid you 50% of the incremental extra value though. Yeah. Yeah. No, unfortunately <laughs> I wish it was, I wish it was that simple. No, he got a, he got a screaming deal on that one, but I can't take credit. All I did was help him stay on track. You know, labor would show up and then not show up. Carpet install, local carpet install company was jerking them around and, and overcharging them for stuff. So I had Sharon Williams come in, same price, extra stuff included. Better quality carpet. Uh, same thing for hard surface flooring. You know, putting an LVP because it was it was a C unit going to like a C plus B minus type quality, but it's a good neighborhood. But it's old stock, right? These buildings were built in the the fifties and sixties, so no aluminum wiring, thank God. But old, you know, water boiler systems and just every single building is slightly different than the other ones, and all kinds of of uh, on-site grading and and drainage issues. And so when people wouldn't show up or couldn't complete, I would just put my feelers out into the neighborhood because I just happened to know everybody in Rochester and I would get him more laborers and more companies to come in and bid to do turns, more companies to come in and bid to do painting and do carpeting and all this other, whatever it needed to be to make sure that he could stay on schedule so he could get this thing leased up and hit his waterfalls and do what he needed to do to pay his investors. Well, so. Let me ask you this. What percentage of, of operators know how to budget it, it, that, at the scale you're talking about, which is this isn't your guy flipping houses, okay, but at, at, at a bigger scale, family office or you know, multi-thousand units, what percentage of these uh, entities are good at knowing how much to budget for CapEx and separately ongoing reserves, cash reserves? Honestly, it depends. I, I wish I could throw a number out there. I've heard some scary numbers for some, from some pretty big, you know, deeply involved commercial guys. Uh, I think I saw Mauricio rolled on LinkedIn the other day, said like 70% of all syndicators have been doing real estate for less than three years and 90% of them still have a W-2 job. So I'm going to say of that crowd, 
probably 2% know what the heck they're doing when it comes to setting stuff up. Hopefully they have good partners coming in that are, that are helping them create those budgets and set those operational standards and, and figure out how to run that. The reality is, unfortunately, that unless they're vertically integrated on some level, whether it's they're vertically integrated on construction, whether they're vertically integrated on maintenance, a lot of the control goes away. And you, you, they don't have much visibility out of saying, okay, well, we're going to budget you know, $15,000 per unit to do this turn when they're walking it. And then you know, they get contractors that show up the job to actually bid it. They open the walls and there's aluminum wire. They open the walls and there's galvanized plumbing. They open the walls and there's whatever else. And suddenly that budget of 15000 a door is gone. And there's no way for them to recapture that. And whose fault is that? Is that the fault of the sub? No. Is that the fault of the, the you know, the let's say less than, um, how do I say it nicely? I don't know if I have a nice way to say it. Let's just say the very optimistic GP operator for that property comes in. And they just don't know what they don't know because they've never been through what happens when you rip a wall open that's 50 years old. They're not used to seeing any of the the craziness. Now, some of them had really good buy criteria, right? Well, we're not going to buy anything that's pre-2005 construction. We're not going to buy anything in coastal Gulf areas. We're not going to buy anything here, there, whatever it may be. And so they were a little bit more insulated, right? Because their buy criteria sort of prevented a lot of those potential issues. And you know, if you're looking at anything built pre-2005, it doesn't matter whether you're in upstate New York or whether you're in coastal Texas, your insurance went up significantly versus what it has been traditionally because of the issues that the insurance industry has been going through. So that's some of it. So where I started kind of in the, I guess, the procurement and operations and knowing the construction side and understanding how everything goes together, it gives me kind of an unfair advantage because I've been doing it for 25 years. But the you know insurance was never on my radar as something that I needed to know about until I started doing some of this total cost of ownership and started talking to guys you know on my own podcast through LinkedIn through networking about what that impact looks like right I started hearing horror stories a couple of years ago about Florida and Texas and how their prices were going through the roof in 2023 and how it was going to get even worse in 2024 and some people believed it and some people didn't until they got the bill right and they're they're caught with now. They're underwater negative cash flow on these properties because they didn't budget $1,400 a door for insurance. They budgeted three. So, a lot of what I do now is okay, well, you know, have you had an insurance review? Do you know what you're going to pay next year? Have you looked into getting a cost seg done before you start construction? Buy the property, sit on it, figure out what you're going to do, build your plan, build your specs, build your team, get a cost seg at purchase, wait until the following tax year, get a cost seg. After construction's done, right? After all the upgrades and rentals are done. Because I find out through talking to um, a cost seg expert, right? Jonah Weiss. Bring him onto my show. We're talking about it. He's like, this is a great strategy. If you're going to hold this thing, right? Because you don't want depreciation recapture and all the other stuff. It's not right for everybody, blah, blah, blah. It does all his disclaimers, but he's like, you're going to buy this property, you're going to hold it. Do a cost seg at purchase, do another one after construction's done. You can double dip on all the, the, the bonus depreciation on those components. Well, holy crap. That's a lot of extra NOI, you know, income, not necessarily NOI, but that's income for the owners that's going to impact their bottom line and their profitability as they start to pay out the earnings on these properties. That's a big deal that people don't think about. Same thing with tax assessment challenges. Everybody got nailed with tax increases over the last two years because of post-COVID property price increases, property value increases. The market went up. Of course, the towns and cities are going are to tap that and, and raise you through the roof. That's common sense. 
You can fight it. Do they fight it? I don't know. But it's something that they can try to do. There are specialists out there. One of them I met several years ago before I even started doing this. And he specializes in doing tax assessment challenges. So his busy season is basically from October to March every single year. And he can take six months off because he charges based on performance. If he doesn't save any money, you don't pay him. It's kind of a no-brainer. Why would you not choose to go down that road? Well, I don't know. Maybe you like to light money on fire, right? That's something I say a lot on my own podcast. You're lighting money on fire. Stop it. Stop lighting money on fire. Do things. Think you know, a few steps ahead, a few steps down the road, and do something that in the procurement world or operations world, you'd call it cost avoidance, right? Don't incur the cost to begin with if you can help it. Well, how do you do that? Don't do deferred maintenance, for one, because... <laughs> All you're doing is going to make it cost more later. It doesn't really matter what it is. Deferred maintenance never actually works out in the favor of the property long term. If you're looking to, you know, unload a property and you want to defer maintenance to spike your NOI for a year, good on you. You're making it somebody else's problem. But the cost to repair that property just based off of inflation, time value of money is always going to be more, right? If you had a problem in 2019, and you deferred maintenance till 2022. Do you think it's cheaper to, fee- to fix it today? Or 2023 or 2024? Is it cheaper to fix it today than it was in 2019? It's probably 30% more expensive, just like everything else. How does, that work? How does that work out for you? right? And a lot of times you get that property management versus asset management fistfight in the office where property management's priority is, I don't want my, my tenants screaming at me and I want them to renew and I want them to do all this stuff. Asset management's like, you have a budget and you better stick to it. Because <laughs> if you don't stick to it, we're not going to make the money we need to make to pay our investors back. But there has to be a, like a common sense plan where the budget and the reality of the property have to come together somewhere in the middle. And that's kind of where the TCO method comes in. Because you might pay a little bit more in year one when you're doing a rehab or you're in mid-process of a rehab to use something that takes less maintenance, takes less time, uses less resources, uses less utility, requires less labor and overhead to maintain over 5 years or 10 years or whatever that happens to be. And it will save you money in the long run versus putting in product, you know, whatever, A, and having it start to require maintenance in year 2, year 3, year 4, year 5. Because the labor for your maintenance is going to cost you a lot more in probably 90% of cases than the extra money you're going to spend on a superior product that reduces that cost. One maintenance call, one maintenance scheduling, whatever it is, by the time you take all your overhead and hourly labor and all of the pieces and parts to get the, the guys from point A to point B into the unit scheduled to walk the, the repair, whatever it may be, and then go to the store, order the product, go to the shop, whatever it may be, to make the problem go away is going to cost you a lot more for that one maintenance call then just spend the extra money at the beginning of the process and avoid the maintenance call completely. So that's where the cost avoidance thing comes in again. And, and most operators do not have a mature procurement function that's looking out for stuff like that. They might have purchasing, right? If they centralize, then it's all going through one main office. If they decentralize, every property is doing their own thing. They could semi-centralize and put a bunch of specifications as to like approved vendors, not approved vendors. And then you get into this whole like, well, what's Maverick spend? And you're getting really deep into some procurement stuff, but there's ways to do it that still allow some freedom for the field to do what they need to do, but you're maintaining the quality of product to reduce the, the maintenance calls. But again, works way better for vertically integrated companies where 
They own the property, they manage the property, right? And maybe they have a construction arm, maybe they don't. But from the very beginning, if the owner of the property sets the specs for the contractors doing the work, the maintenance guys, and says, these are the companies you're going to buy, here's the products you're going to use. We have pre-negotiated pricing and rebates and terms and discounts and all this other stuff from vendors X, Y, and Z, whether it's you know Ferguson and Westco and whoever, or whether it's Home Depot. Home Depot does all sorts of black ops programs they don't advertise that are way over the top of anything that anybody would walk in the store and see. But it's not for the faint of heart because it is very labor-intensive to make those things work. So it's all about what's the benefit to the company versus the cost to actually implement and execute on those processes. What would you say is what would you say you had alluded to earlier? Property management always has its challenges. I think that's what you said. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you said that, like, what what are top you know what are top problem top property management challenges? So, I mean, for me on the the side I do right. So the maintenance, the construction, the 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 operations, the purchasing. It's usually um, some of it is their units are not built. For failure. They're not constructed in a way that assumes that you're going to get the lowest common denominator of tenant. And I don't say that from a class standpoint. I say that from a tenant education standpoint, right? You get tenants who will have dogs, who will have kids, who will, you know, work construction, who will work whatever, whether you're doing workforce housing, luxury housing. The problem is the same. Do you have a tenant who's going to walk into the unit with mud or snow or water on their boots and get it on the floor? Well, some of these products require you to mop the water off the floor within you know four to seven minutes of putting it there, or it's going to swell up and disintegrate, right? Most of your laminates, it's just literally it's cardboard with a picture of wood stamped on it. <laughs> People still install laminates into these apartment complexes and into these single-family rentals and all this other stuff. Why? Like we made that mistake. I made that mistake early on, right? As as people were trying to transition away from sheet vinyl, because every time you drag an appliance or a chair or a table across the floor, if it wasn't properly prepped and installed, which 90% of the time your guys are not installing sheet vinyl with glue, they're just throwing it down loosely and putting the trim over the top of it, it just rips a hole in it. So we started getting away from that. I started advising people to go to LVP, LVT, and oh, where's this laminate stuff? It'll be great. Yeah, no, no, it's not great. It's only great, like maybe in Arizona where there is no water. <laughs> it's a terrible product for rentals. It just costs a lot more. So you're, you're stuck replacing the floor every single time you do a turn. When you're looking at um, different types of, of finishes, it doesn't really matter what it is. What are your biggest opportunities? To reduce maintenance calls. Well, what are your what are your big maintenance calls? And this is something that a lot of companies don't do because maybe they don't they keep track of the total maintenance calls. Maybe, maybe 50% of them keep track of time to repair, right? Maybe 50% of them are keeping track of windshield time to get parts or not get parts. But the vast majority just do what they've always done. And that's, oh, there's a problem, get the guy in the unit, make the appointment, find out what it is and fix it. And so the guys are in the trucks, you know, behind the, the steering wheel three or four times a day sometimes. Sometimes it's three or four times a week, but it's still, it should be zero if there's any type of pre planning. It's the same thing for um, if you're 
going to allow, um, you know, kids to be in the units. What kind of paint are you putting on the walls? Are you just putting the cheapest stuff that's there? Are you going to touch this stuff up? Or are you going to have to repaint the entire unit when there's all sorts of fingerprints and crayon and other stuff in this flat paint that you put on the walls? Because, well, flat paint hides everything. Sure, it does. It also absorbs everything. So every handprint, every single scuff shows up like a sore thumb. And at this point, even Sherwin-Williams is changing their formulations so often, you may not be able to just touch that up. You might be stuck having to repaint the whole thing. So maybe having something that, that's a little bit easier to deal with instead of using a flat on the walls, maybe you're going to use like a satin or an eggshell. Like there's, there's little changes you can make that everybody faces. Same thing with appliances. Well, why are you putting ice makers and connecting them in C apartments? Even in B apartments in some cases, like having water in the door, or having an ice maker, it's a nice feature. But what happens if you've got somebody who likes to clean and they pull that refrigerator out from the wall? Are they going to disconnect? Are they going to think about turning the water off and disconnecting that little plastic pipe at that elbow? Or are they just going to pull the fridge out and snap it off and flood the kitchen and then ruin three apartments below it? How, how are those things helping you? So it seems like it should be common sense, right? To anybody who's been in the industry for a long time, but it's amazing how often it is not common sense. It is amazing how often people don't think about, if I do this, what's the potential downside to this in a year, two years, three years? What's this going to cost me over the next three, four, five, six years versus just doing something different? So the, the challenge is kind of to not just be constantly putting out fires, right? You always hear that, that, oh, the, you know, the owners of the business, they're working in the business and not on the business. So they don't really see that stuff. Well, yeah, I, I get that. But by the same token, at some point, if you're running a business, you have to run the business as business if you're going to stay profitable, especially now, now that things are so much tighter and, and, you know, cap rate compression has literally degraded. 15, 20, 30, 40% of property value from purchase if you bought it in 2020 to 2022, it, this might be a good time to really think about how you're operating your property to avoid all of the things that just chip away. It's never anything huge, right? Like a building burns down, you probably have insurance. Even if your insurance was underwritten poorly, you're going to get something from them, even if it's only 30% of what the actual replacement value is for that. But there's a lot of stuff you do where you just chip away at that and you get nothing back. All you're doing is just spending money putting out fires and fixing this and fixing that. And so avoiding the problems, a lot of times people won't renew because they have little things that bug them. And it's not something they ever call you for, like a toilet that just runs forever. Number one, that toilet's costing you a lot of money because it's just running water and you're paying for water and sewer if you have sewers for that entire time. Number two, they're like, eh, you know, I don't really want to have to deal with this whatever issue that seems like it should be like a quick fix, right? You put a new flapper in, you put a new toilet in, whatever it may be to fix that. No big deal to you. But if they never call, they just choose to not renew. And if you're in a C or a D, you're going to churn 50% or more of your tenants. Well, that costs you money, right? Placement fees cost you money. Having some, having vacancy, right? Having downtime, whether it's, you know, because you're going to do a rehab or not. Every month that you don't have somebody in there, that's an opportunity cost that's building up on your property. So how do you minimize the opportunity cost? Right? And I had 
clients I worked with when I was at Depot that I still work with now, where their target from you know, move out to move in, they would try to do an entire rehab in less than four weeks from demo to cleaning in three weeks. So the final punch list and inspection could be done a couple days before move in. And that's still doable. Was it, was it doable during the pandemic? Maybe not. <laughs> there was definitely some extra uh, uh, losses from, from vacancy at that point, but you can do it now. But you have to have the systems in place. You have to have the processes in place. You have to have the relationships in place to do it. And so it it really comes down to taking a hard look at how you're running the business today and going, could we do better? Not, hey, we're doing okay because we're doing it the same way we've been doing it forever. Like there's tools out there to help. There's software out there to help. There's modules. I guarantee you, if you're using a one site or a Yardi or a, a real page or any of those software suites to help you manage your properties, there are modules in there that you can turn on that will make your life easier if you just learn how to turn them on and set them up and use them. Right. It, but a lot of people don't because their employees are resistant to change. They're not coachable. And the average technician, whether it's maintenance or HVAC or electrical subcontractors, the average subcontractor is over 50 years old now across the country. They're going to be super resistant to change. (laughs) You're going to have to find smarter ways, more efficient ways to do things because eventually these people are going to completely age out of the industry. And if we don't get a massive change in how, you know, Gen Z and millennials look at physical labor and construction, we are going to be in for a world of hurt. We're already heading there. Very, very enlightening conversation, uh, Andy. Unbelievable. I'm so glad we talked and I would love to talk to you again uh, at some point in the not distant future. How, how does one get a hold of uh, Mr. Andy McQuaid? So there's a bunch of ways. I do, I'm on LinkedIn pretty regularly. I'm on Twitter, but I'm really bad at it. Uh, I don't really post a lot. I just comment and make snarky jokes. Um, so if you want to be entertained, I guess Twitter is probably the best place. You can send me a message. My messages are open there. Um, but really, LinkedIn is the best place if you're a social media person and you're on LinkedIn. If you're not, you can shoot me an email, andy at andymcquade.com. Um, I've got a website for the podcast. I've got my own personal website, obviously, andymcquade.com. You can just send an email to any of my business websites, andy at, it'll get to me. You know, It might go through a VA before it lands in my inbox. but Generally speaking, I don't let anybody else look at my LinkedIn. So if you want a direct line with no interference, LinkedIn is the place to go. If you want to shoot me an email, it'll eventually get into my hands, usually within 24 hours. Fantastic. You provide a lot of value to your clients. And uh, you know, uh, congratulations on going out on your own a handful of years ago and making it happen. So I, I Thank look you, forward to talking to you again. Yeah, you bet. It's been Talk exciting, for sure. I appreciate the time. You got it. Talk to you soon. 